Hi, this is the Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, today we're going to be airing a forum that helped uh, highlights from a forum that was um, conducted at the uh, Headquarters of the Council on American Islamic Affairs, CARE, uh, relations actually, CARE, and that involved the whole issue of suspicious activity reporting. Uh, that is when uh, citizens or anybody is feels that something is out of place, according to the LAPD's iWatch site. If something is out of place. Like supposedly, I suppose, a certain minority in Orange County, or a certain type of person in Orange County that looks suspicious, then report him. So that is the uh, mandate from these um, police authority types that want you to report suspicious people,、uh, and it's not just the LAPD. The feds are getting into it, and so it's going to be nationalized. They're using the LAPD site as a model, as a prototype, and we'll be hearing from two lawyers who have researched this, and will be giving us some examples of what happens when you report suspicious activity and where it ends up, and are there any predicates to criminal activity, or is it just rumor mongering? And that happened to a former student at UC Irvine last year, who accompanied George Galloway, the left-wing、uh, member of Parliament, who spoke at UC Irvine at a Muslim、uh, student union affair. And after he dropped off Galloway at the Orange County Airport, he got called by the authorities, who wanted to know why he was taking pictures at the Orange County Airport. And that was all because. He had taken a picture of Galloway before he boarded a plane, so that was suspicious activity. So we're going to go to this、uh, audio of、um, the、um, of the forum, and、uh, introducing is、uh, the forum is uh, is uh, Amina Kirza. And she's the、uh, staff attorney and deputy director of Care. And then we'll hear from Tom Shinkata, Shinkata, who is the public,、uh, sorry, political research associates、uh, researcher, the research director, who is、uh, looking at this whole history, this new history of political research,、uh, of uh, actually, I guess it's political reporting too, but it's suspicious activity reporting, and. Then we'll go to Peter Ebring from the ACLU, who's worked with the、uh, LAPD to try to moderate its iWatch program,、um, and let's see how successful that is. So we're going to be、uh, bringing you highlights of these two talks at the uh, recent uh, forum that took place actually just Wednesday, and on th- on、uh, later this week there'll be a.、Uh, A new report out called "Platform for Prejudices" from the Political Research Associates out in Massachusetts, which、uh, Mary Fisher worked on, and that's the report that will be、uh, linking these SAR reportings, SAR S A R reports, to、uh, the terrorism anti-terrorism centers called fusion centers. That proliferate around the U.S. So we'll be、uh, airing that those talks momentarily, and uh, let's uh, go to that uh, that uh, talk now. And this is Subversity here on KUCI with Dan Zhang. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.
Um, in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, I welcome and thank all of you for coming this evening to discuss this very crucial topic on suspicious activity reporting. Um, just to let you guys all know, we have a great panel of speakers up here tonight, both academics, lawyers, investigators, and community leaders to discuss this topic. And to let you guys get to know each other a little bit, um, we're not going to go around and do introductions, but we're also joined by, um, in the audience, attorneys, community leaders, investigators, um, academics as well. So please take the time that you can when this is over to, to really get to know each other because we really do hope that we will leave this evening with some sort of action items on our plate to try and better affect this issue. Now, now that we have kind of a good solid basis of understanding how this affects people on the ground, I wanted to go ahead and shoot it over to you know the, the person and the project that we're really gathered here for. Um, as you guys know, the Political Research Associates, which is based out of Maryland, right? Massachusetts. Massachusetts, the other, it's East Coast, we're West Coast. Um, we're actually also joined by the Executive Director um, from, from Political Research Associates, Tarzo Ramos, right? Okay, very nice to have you here as well. Um, they've been working for the last year or two on, on compiling um, stories and evidence of the um, suspicious activity reporting initiatives from across the country and how they all relate together and how they potentially will affect civil liberties and privacy interests um, across the country. The name of the project, and I'm cheating off of your notes, is Platform for Prejudice. And my eyes aren't that good. How the nationwide um, suspicious activities reporting initiative invites racial profiling, erodes civil liberties, and undermines security. So I'm going to ask Tom Cicada, who is the project lead on, on this, to come and speak about his project. We also have to my left most Miss um, Mary Fisher. Mary Fisher is an investigative journalist and was the LA contact and investigator of the Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative here. So we'll have her speak um, near the end as well. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to Tom. Thank you, Amina, and you're always welcome, of course, in Massachusetts. I will uh, give you a tour and show you the many respects that were better than Maryland. <laughs> but, uh, no, really, thank you very much. Uh, I'm honored to be uh, by Karis Hospitality and uh, to be also working with the Islamic Shura Council and the Interfaith uh, Coalition for United for Justice and Peace. Uh, we are very proud to have them as allies in this project, and uh, the project could not uh, move forward without you. Um, I also thank you very much for your work in organizing tonight's events. I contacted Amina just two or three, three weeks ago to say, oh, you know that uh, project we're working on for the past year? Okay, well, we have one of our first reports coming out, and I'd like to come to town and talk to you about it, and uh, do you think you could rally some some people who might be interested in hearing what we have to say. And um, she really uh, took that and ran with it. And um, for that, we're very grateful. Uh, the report, um, Platform for Prejudice, will be released uh, formally next week. The actual main report is in final production right now. It will be available at our website, publicieye.org, uh, next week. And I also invite you to uh, review the other materials we have at uh, the website. Political Research Associates is a small progressive think tank located in Somerville and um, in addition to this report uh, related to civil liberties we have several other articles uh, analyzing Islamophobia as kind of being projected by Steve Emerson and other players uh, and uh, some other analyses of intelligence fusion centers, the use of informants in uh, Muslim and Arab and Middle Eastern communities as well as in activist communities. Um, so those are some of our other recent articles. Uh, in Platform for Prejudice, what we are doing is we are trying to uh, look at one key system, suspicious activities reporting, that ties together a lot of key agencies in the domestic security infrastructure that's grown up post 9-11. The Suspicious Activities Reporting Initiative serves as a platform for prejudice in uh, three key ways that I'll 
I will highlight for you tonight. Uh, specifically, the policies, uh, the criteria for identifying what, what is suspicious in our post-9-11 environment, uh, elements of the, the system structure which uh, facilitates um, the erosion of civil liberties, uh, sort of behind closed doors in many ways, and a new, uh, and a new model of policing called intelligence-led policing. We feel that that term somewhat masks its true nature, and we prefer to call it preemptive policing. I understand uh, from Peter that LAPD calls it predictive policing. And voila, the domestic security infrastructure. Uh, this little picture I will not be explaining tonight, but I just want to show it to you. Um, what the people in the intelligence community call the infrastructure that we're dealing with is known as the information sharing environment. And this um, depiction by the RAND Corporation is at once, it's the best presentation I've seen of this massive bewildering web of uh, organizations that have proliferated since 9-11, um, but also in many ways the worst presentation because it doesn't tell you a whole lot about what's going on. Um, for the purposes tonight, we're, we're talking about this, uh, <laughs> the Fusion Center, and uh, as well as the J Joint Terrorism Task Forces to a certain extent, who connect in local police, state police, and the county <coughs> level. Uh, as you can see, that's only just one small, uh, small segment of a $57 billion intelligence enterprise. Uh, which is counterbalanced mere, by mere seven million dollars in investment in, in civil liberties oversight. Um, eventually, well, the Suspicious Activities Reporting Initiative currently is aimed at integrating police at your local level with the broader federal network through fusion centers Eventually, all these other federal agencies will uh, be brought on board through s formal suspicious activities reporting uh, mechanisms. Uh, the Department of Energy, the Coast Guard, the Department of Defense are all um, formulating their own uh, systems, which will be plugged in together. For our purposes, what we're looking at is how the suspicious activities report is one mechanism for the exchange of information in this infrastructure. Uh, it's an intelligence pipeline from the bottom up, from your local beat cop or from the public, uh, member of the public who calls in a suspicious incident, as you've seen from um, the two individuals who've testified so far about their experiences. Um, and it feeds it into a system of fusion centers. Uh, these are ostensibly or loosely led by the Department of Homeland Security. There are 72 of them across the country and they, they sit together, your local police alongside FBI analysts, Homeland Security analysts, and have uh, remarkable uh, surveillance powers and the ability to uh, access enormous uh, amounts of information about every one of us uh, through commercial and public databases. Um, the fusion centers are connected to the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, which play the more of the investigative, active investigative role. Um, JTTF's uh, responsible for the Terrorism Screening Center, which is, you know, is the 24-7 uh, database wherein um, any local police officers pull somebody over. If, if they so desire, they can run that name, ask, ask the query, the TSC if an individual is on a terrorism watch list. I, I mentioned here the other two uh, entities, the National Counterterrorism Center, uh, in part because that's where the information flows upward from the fusion center. Um, it then will often go to the net, vertically up to the National Counterterrorism Center, which is responsible for uh, the TIDES database, um, which is our uh, another massive terrorism database, and um, is responsible also for, at the federal level for synthesizing and analyzing this information. Uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence is there 
because they have been coordinating uh, the two-year pilot program uh, for a national system for suspicious activities reports. The Suspicious Activities Reporting Initiative was spearheaded in part by uh, Los Angeles Police Department when they ordered um, Special Order Number 11 in March 2008 to, as a means of codifying um, reports of suspicious activities. The idea here is various agencies around the country have had these kind of programs informally and ad hoc. Uh, since 9-11, and even before, you know, detectives maintain tips and leads files. They want to know, um, you know, if you get rumors and tips about different criminal activity, keep it in the file. And the Suspicious Activities Reporting Initiative is a, is a means for the system to collect and harness these reports gathered in uh, across the country in a manner that they can be mined collectively. Um, so if you are uh, inputting a, a report about a site breach um, in, in Anaheim and you want an analyst in Tallahassee or Washington, D.C. to be able to compare that event to data in their own uh, file, there needs to be a system of common, common language, common technology, common codes, to be able to run uh, adequate searches to do this. Well, the feds are, are very close to achieving this capacity technologically now. For the past two years, um, or since the March 2008 announcement of the LA program, uh, 12 other sites went online for what's called an evaluation environment or a pilot program to test out these common, uh, this, this technological infrastructure for sharing and, uh, and mining suspicious activity activity reports. Um, and they're set to announce in the next week or so that the system is right to be for a national deployment, meaning it would be rolled out to the 72 fusion centers to institutionalize this and, and conceivably to multiple other uh, police departments. Uh, the system really views the 800,000 or so police officers we have in this country as force multipliers in the war on terrorism. And the SAR program is one way they hope to mobilize people and get them involved uh, in this effort. It is, so although in the literature you often see, well, suspicious activities reporting, we've been doing this for a long time, it's very akin to tips and leads. But now we're moving to an amplified, you know, tips and leads uh, on a much, on a much grander basis. This is soon the tips and leads file in, you know, the in Detective Murphy's cabinet are going to be able to, you know, be viewed by law enforcement and intelligence agencies at every level through a federated search tool, you know, one secure web portal. So what does that mean in terms of updating our notions of our civil liberty safeguards uh, and, and how we treat tips and leads uh, legally? A brief, uh, you know, law lesson for the evening is um, a somewhat obscure but very important federal regulation, uh, key civil liberty safeguard that was enacted after the COINTELPRO abuses of the 1960s, wherein you know, J. Edgar Hoover had you know, initiated a program that um, sought to you know, destroy, attack, harass, and neutralize uh, domestic uh, political organizations uh, that were deemed subversive by the FBI. Uh, local police intelligence units assisted in those efforts uh, to a large extent and uh, ultimately many of them closed up shop in the 1970s after they were sued. Some of the key 
protections of 28 CFR 23 are a criminal predicate uh, or reasonable suspicion, meaning information cannot enter criminal intelligence files unless it is related by a, a, unless there's reasonable suspicion of criminal conduct. Secondly, another key provision is that intelligence systems must exclude political, religious, or social views unless they are too directly related to criminal conduct. And uh, there are key ways in which these programs are eroding uh, those key protections. Language in the SAR reporting system uh, weakens the criminal predicate in one way, and in a couple ways. One, it, we see repeatedly at the federal level and at the local level that these, um, the standards for what is, uh, what can go into suspicious activities files um, must be reasonably indicative of uh, pre-operational planning related to terrorism or other criminal activity. I see this as a sign that They've actively, they're departing from the time-tested rule of reasonable suspicion. If they meant for this to mean reasonable suspicion, they would have said reasonable suspicion. Arguably, uh, by using the language reasonably indicative, they're talking about something, even a lower threshold for the type of information that can be fed into these information sharing systems. Secondly, we're seeing legal, um, legal activity named, like taking photographs, for instance, um, videotaping using binoculars, taking notes, are specifically mentioned as suspicious acts uh, in a number of programs. Uh, for instance, here in LA we have that, in Washington DC, it's the same language as LA, uh, you will see uh, Suspicious activity criteria can include, you know, trespass beyond, you know, um, into protected areas at an airport alongside other um, innocuous legal behaviors. In addition, we're seeing a lot of language that is just plain vague, especially in the programs that are reaching out to the public and not necessarily to the department. Uh, LA's iWatch in particular, you know, if a behavior or activity makes you feel uncomfortable, report it. Um, it's always better to report activities that do not seem right. Um, in, in Miami, um, number five down there, suspicious persons out of place. It doesn't take a sociologist or political scientist or anybody to, you know, to, to really recognize the, the, the coding here. Um, you know, this is not much more than just enforcing racial segregation. If, if somebody who doesn't fit um, your, you know, your ethnic group and seems out of the ordinary, you should maybe give them a second look. Um, and I, I, and I, when I say race, I'm. I'm referring, of course, also to ethnic, national origin, and religious uh, discrimination. This, this is a leap forward from simple just crime reporting. You know, McGruff crime dog, you know, if you, see, if you see graffiti, if you see crime happening in your neighborhood, call it in. They're actually encouraging you, call in, encouraging you to call in something that's innocent uh, behavior that just... Um, makes you feel uncomfortable. Uh, that is a recipe for, uh, for profiling. In, in lowering the threshold like this, this can only lead to a lower, a lower quality of intelligence. It can't, uh, it doesn't seem likely, and I don't think the evidence has been produced that, these, that this approach is making anybody safer, and that the, um, these incidences at the, uh, regarding innocent behavior have contributed in any significant way to uh, uncovering or predicting plots as uh, they suggest in theory. 
In addition, the um, extremely vague and subjective criteria uh, well, it's a very thin line between look, examining how people look at things and what people look like. Uh, related to, or a precursor to the current Suspicious Activities Program, there was an incident in Santa Monica in 2005 where uh, a white gentleman photographed three Middle Eastern men who were seen videotaping the pier at Santa Monica. If anyone's ever walked under the under the pier, you can recognize that as a picture of the structural elements of the, the pier. There's a pathway that's open to the public that goes right under the pier. But this individual thought the um, you know the, the men were um, you know casing the pier for a possible uh, plot. Uh, he photographed them and a few weeks later sent that uh, photograph to the Santa Monica police who tracked the men down. Um, the police seized the video and characterized it as probing because the photographers themselves uh, were not pictured in, in the video. Um, they said, you know, if, this were, if, if these were tourists, certainly their family and friends would be included in the footage. Um, this, uh, the police consulted in this case in July of 05 with the FBI the Los Angeles Terrorism Early Warning Center, the LACTU was the uh, precursor to today's Fusion Center, and the State Department of Homeland Security. As a result, Santa Monica police uh, requested $2 million of this, uh, uh, from their city council to install uh, surveillance cameras, additional patrols, bomb-sniffing dogs um, for the pier. No arrests were made. But this, this demonstrates, especially in a time uh, of real uh, budget crunching, that how racial profiling can affect all of us and hitting the, hits the uh, taxpayers uh, in the wallet. When uh, we titled our report platform for, for prejudice, we are also considering political bias and prejudice. Um, the suspicious activities reporting criteria also open the door for uh, monitoring of political speech that is completely legal. Uh, the language here from LAPD Special Order 11 is mirrored in other sites around the country. It indicates that these criteria include uh, someone who espouses extremist views. I have not abridged that. That is the actual language. The, the criteria do not contain any further definition to guide uh, law enforcement in what uh, extremism means. Uh, brags about affiliation with extremist organizations. Uh, again, it does not uh, identify what such organization is. There is no requirement of a violent, of making violent threats or uh, of actual criminal activity, and lastly, affiliation with an organization. Um, so, if you're a member of Greenpeace, well, uh, being the first one, extremists. <laughs> 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 they, they have been convicted of criminal activities. So right. You're a member of Greenpeace. Is that are you affiliated? I, I, <laughs> That, that's the question. This really leaves uh, so much discretion up to the individual officer and their biases and assumptions. Um, you know, anarchists, um, environmentalists, socialists. Um, you know, this is um, you know this language is completely offensive on First Amendment grounds, and it's exactly why um, the the civil liberty safeguards were enacted after COINTELPRO to say the government does not have a legitimate role in interfering with legal political activity. Starting to see, the, see some of this political bias uh, pop up in the system. I mean, not only do we see a preemptive model being deployed, uh, employed at national security events where the FBI cooperates with local police forces to you know, prepare or to um, dissuade uh, people from taking uh, civil disobedience or other uh, preparing rallies. Um, this is happening at national conventions, the G20s, 
G20 summit in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, but through the fusion centers, uh, which coordinate those responses, uh, we're also seeing this other, um, some other nods that maybe in the fusion centers they're keeping an eye on political dissent and monitoring us. Uh, again, um, these are just a, among several of the more notorious incidents that have been revealed to the public and only revealed due to um, leaks by insiders or uh, in the case of the bottom two here where um, in March 08, uh, DHS had produced a terrorism watch list about a Muslim conference in Georgia. Um, that was only revealed due to a lawsuit by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, the, an inspector general had discovered that report and uh, DHS uh, retracted it and admonished its employees. However, they did not uh, release that, uh, evidence, that abuse to the public. It took a lawsuit. Um, for that to happen more than almost two years later. Um, similarly, DHS uh, disseminated uh, a report on Islam, uh, the Nation of Islam, that was uh, similarly retracted and, and not made public and, until a, a lawsuit. Uh, you know, this underscores the need, of course, to continue to apply pressure uh, and to somehow institutionalize vigorous, robust forms of oversight of all of these institutions. Uh, reports such as those are often produced by the intelligence analysts. These are, you can have um, civilian and um, sworn uh, analysts working in fusion centers or in intelligence units. Uh, very often, I, the Department of Justice only requires 40 hours of training for the intelligence analysts. Uh, they often come from a military background, um, and they might harbor the same biases and assumptions that the public or frontline officers have. So if the system is currently relying on the intelligence analysts to weed out the reports that do not meet legal standards, as a, as a check that may be woefully inadequate. Um, this is not to say that all, all analysts share uh, these assumptions um, and prejudices, but they are going to the same, um, you know, for instance, Mary had attended in, in Long Beach, California, a conference where a counterterrorism training outfit called Security Solutions International had their expert on Islam speak, uh, a Long Beach a detective who uh, presents, um, you know, a, a story uh, about, um, or a, a line, basically an ideological line that organizations like CARE and Muslim American Society are front organizations for jihad. Uh, this is being taught in law enforcement circles and certainly the attendees are not all immune or educated to the truth. So. Um, Another reason why we need to uh, subject these institutions to rigorous scrutiny. Uh, within the fusion centers uh, are structures that make it uh, even more difficult to tell if, if the system is complying with the civil liberties safeguards. A lot of small words on this chart. I, I don't expect you to read them all, but what, what it, it depicts is how they're moving the goalposts to, for the safeguard as to, as to when it applies in the process. And I would argue that this shows that suspicious activities reporting or reports are being shared system-wide without a reasonable suspicion being established. Um, on the one hand, in the fusion center context, Suspicious activities are getting reported here. They're still called considered non-intelligence, where these... Put out an eye. So what is that? Whoa. Amazing. Put out your eye. Okay. I feel like Michael Scott now. All right. So according to this chart, 
put together by the people who are monitoring the evaluation environment and pilot project, and they were checking in to Congress in June of 2009 to say, here's what's happening. Keep in mind, they have not set strong federal guidelines. They've pretty much give, given license to local organizations to figure it out. We'll, we'll figure out best practices later. Well, they're considering this whole area about where intelligence is being collected and initially shared within the Fusion Center as the realm of non-intelligence, <coughs> where the Civil Liberties Safeguard of 28 CFR 23 doesn't even yet apply. So within the Fusion Center, where a local agency is sitting down already with DHS analysts, analysts from FBI, um, this information is being shared collectively. They're mining it. For instance, individuals who are stopped for praying or doing a photograph um, at the airport, they're not only is the Terrorism Screening Center being um, uh, being contacted, but they may also do a more in-depth link analysis. Um, let's, you know, pour through some of these credit reports, see, see who you've lived with for the last 10 years, and see if any of those individuals pop up on any of our lists. So we wanted to know, you know that, uh, we want to know who your associations are, uh, and are any of them uh, linked, more, linked to terrorism. Um, for me, uh, so there's this little pocket here for reasonable suspicion established. If so, it, it would go to the information sharing environment, shared space, or the FBI's eGuardian uh, database, which is a non-classified system that allows more police to look at the FBI files. Um, but also, there's a, another track here, it's just generally for terrorism related, that um, short circuits or doesn't even uh, pass through this requirement of reasonable suspicion being established. It's sort of that, that catch-all of we suspect that perhaps this may suggest a plot, uh, you know, a, a terrorism attack is being planned. Um, I, the, the, the standards in that area are very, um, still very vague and, and haven't, been, um, haven't been spelled out. Uh, lastly, there is a, a philosophy that undergirds the, the Suspicious Activities Reporting Initiative uh, called Intelligence-Led Policing or Preemptive Policing. This helps uh, combine, I think, to, to raise prejudice and to, uh, to increase the sense of insecurity in our communities and ultimately undermine, uh, undermine trust divide communities, alienate, um, alienate key segments uh, you know, of the American populace, really. And uh, we have to, uh, you know, this, this statement from Michael Chertoff uh, exemplifies intelligence-led policing is, a, is in large part about um, grabbing everyday observations, non-criminal, and, and funneling into the, them into the system, the idea being that we'll then uh, pieces of the puzzle will assemble in a way that crystallizes and we can predict, uh, predict what, what didn't get pre prevented on 9-11. Here I'm trying to compare how this departs from current policing. Um, most uh, urban de departments uh, certainly 90% of major urban departments are operating under a system called CompStat, Computer-Aided Statistical Analysis of Crime. Um, and David Carter, the, the American expert really on intelligence-led policing, this is an import from the UK where they don't have a constitution and a First Amendment and a Fourth Amendment. Um, it's Intelligence-led policing was kind of adopted in, in, as a sounded good, like this is what we should be doing uh, from the intelligence perspective, and they've kind of caught up, they've had to try to catch up or backfill on, well, what do we really mean by that? You know, for instance, intelligence-led policing is mentioned 30 times in the National Criminal Intelligence Sharing Plan, but not defined uh, a single time. 
So they've been working on the definition and trying to work on what this model really means. And uh, Carter, uh, who is a supporter of this uh, approach, says, well, it's, it's threat-driven, not merely incident-driven. Uh, we're, we're looking at tips, leads, suspicious activities uh, reports, rather than on actual crime data and facts gleaned from active investigations and prosecutions. We're doing link analysis and associations, whereas the, um, uh, under CompStat, it's more about crime mapping, you know, what what has happened in this neighborhood in the last month, in the last six months, um, where you're examining actual incidents of behavior uh, of, of crime. Um, the focus is more systemic. It's looking at root causes. Um, and it's long-term and strategic. In the, in the counterterrorism context, it says profound implications for First Amendment activity. Because if you're, if you're trying to maintain situational awareness of politics, what does that mean? I mean, that means you're not just uh, maintaining files on, uh, on organized crime leaders in your city, but you may now also be monitoring uh, the activities of community organizers um, and, and other advocates and activists, all in the name of situational awareness. In sum, uh, <laughs> Preemptive, preemptive policing, um, <sighs> I'm, I'm wearing out here. Assign standards, uh, tag the legal activities, lower civil liberty safeguards, and this increases fear in the community and that it will ultimately erode uh, trust. Um, you know, another argument to make in the counterterrorism context um, to, to those on the other side is that these over-aggressive measures actually could um, give the enemy, you know, more fodder. You know, if if there are extreme elements who are saying, look, Muslim is Islam is incompatible with America, they don't want you there. Well, this is only sort of feeding into that lie um, by alienating um, Muslim, you know, Muslim communities by doing unwarranted harassment and searches. Uh, what to do? But lastly, we need. Um, not only to reform the criteria for safeguards and to make sure it's covering all of these um, various systems, but we won't know if we improve the policies, we won't know if they're complying unless there are rigorous forms of independent external oversight. In Massachusetts, the ACLU of Massachusetts has a bill that would uh, create a legislative function uh, to oversee all fusion center activity in the state. Uh, we're also calling on, um, you know, Congress should conduct a thorough review and hearings on the suspicious activities reporting initiative before it's deployed from 12 sites nationwide. You know, it needs to do a thorough review of its lawfulness and effectiveness uh, before it's launched nationwide. And, and lastly, you know, law enforcement executives need to take a look at the implications of intelligence-led policing. Is this really a road we want to go down? Is it compatible with our values? And ultimately, will it uh, stir up more community, uh, more mis, uh, distrust of law enforcement um, than uh, actually help? Thank you very much. Um, I mentioned Peter Birbing to my left. Peter Birbing is the law, law enforcement and privacy staff attorney for the American Civil Liberties Union of Southern California. Um, I don't know of any person in the Los Angeles area who is doing more work on law enforcement issues from a civil rights perspective and who actually thankfully has the ear of local law enforcement and is continually striving um, to affect these issues and in a positive manner. We're really fortunate to have him here with us today to, to discuss a little bit more about the racial profiling issues and also what's going down here in Los, the Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area. Thank you. You're listening to Subversity on KUCI 88.9 FM um, in Irvine. And as Amina said, I, what I'm going to talk about tonight after the, the very comprehensive uh, presentation that Tom gave about the, the SAR process in general is really um, what's going on in Los Angeles, in the LAPD in particular. Um, what's going on, what's wrong with what's going on in LAPD. A little bit about what's a little 
I, w I don't want to say what's right about what's good about what's going on at LAPD, but but some of the things that are they're doing that are a little bit less scary, and and uh, what we need to be concerned about. And uh, despite Amina's kind introduction, there are actually a number of people in this room who could probably give the same presentation uh, who've been working on this issue. Amina, Shaquille, um, folks at Impact uh, have been uh, really working on LAPD and the SAR process and trying to um, rein it in to the extent possible. Um, so LAPD, and you got some of this from Tom's presentation, really in many ways initiated the, the, the SAR program nationwide uh, about just under two years ago when they issued uh, Special Order 11, which is a list of 48 behaviors that they um, they asked their line officers to report to their central counterterrorism um, division for analysis and follow-up. Now, about 44 of those behaviors are pretty non-controversial things that you would, in fact, want your local police officer to follow up on. Things like stockpiling explosives, um, <laughs> trespassing um, in secured areas. Um, that's, you know, uncontroversially criminal activities. The problem is about four of the activities are non-criminal, ordinary, and in some cases uh, constitutionally protected activities. Those include, and, and this is a direct quote, taking photographs of, with no apparent aesthetic value. <laughs> and, uh, I, I had a lot of conversations with, uh, with law enforcement over the, the years, and I agree with them on some things and disagree with them on others, but I, I assure you that our aesthetic judgments are not similar. Um, taking notes, drawing diagrams, making measurements, taking measurements. Um, you know, uh, something that you know, I've been engaged in through most of this presentation and, and, and spent probably about three hours a day doing. Um, and uh, espousing support, uh, espousing extremist viewpoints or um, espousing support for extremist organizations, um, which could be characterized, uh, you know, in, could be seen in, in, in many activities. I mean, I know you can't go on a college campus without seeing a, a hundred kids with a Che Guevara sweatshirt or socks. So. Um, <laughs> That the, the four behaviors that they've named that uh, are, are non-criminal and protected activity are concerned, and in fact, in the, the, the guidance given at the beginning of this order that describes that officers are to record these activities um, on the standardized uh, incident report forms that have been given to all officers and have been changed so that there's now a suspicious activity report box that allows it to be routed directly to counterterrorism. Um, the guidance in the beginning that tells officers you need to look for these activities, you need to report them, explicitly says that the purpose is to assist counterterrorism investigations by collecting information on criminal and non-criminal activities. And it is a sea change for law enforcement to be charged with investigating non-criminal activities. And it's difficult to underestimate the importance of that, that, that little or non-criminal in, in the preamble. Um, I'm going to come back to, to Special Order 11 and SAR, uh, the suspicious activity reporting, um, but I also wanted to talk about another piece of the program that has been recently rolled out, which is the iWatch program, which is essentially their um, citizen involvement, their, their community watch, their neighborhood watch. Um, it is still in its very early phases. Uh, you may have heard something about it. There's a website up if you Google LAPD iWatch, you, you can get to the website. It has public service announcements up there and, and some materials that you can download and, in fact, a, a computerized form for reporting where you can explore what the suspicious activities that they're asking you to report are. And in the main, it's fairly similar to the, the suspicious activity, slightly simplified for uh, the, the lay audience, the community audience. The initial versions, though, that came out, um, Tom cited some of the the, the language used that to report anything that seemed out of place, um, anything that doesn't seem right to you, it's better to report 
um, than not to report. Um, and some of the um, some of the same activities are named, particularly on the website, which actually takes the user through a list of what the activity is, and you can click photography. But uh, some of the materials even added uh, a couple of, uh, of new behaviors, notably um, wearing clothes uh, too big that are too big or too warm for the weather, which I don't know if, if any of you have been to a high school anywhere in Los Angeles. Uh, it's probably about 40% of the student body. Um, so, and Tom also outlined already, you know, some of the concerns about this. I mean, basically, look, some of this activity, photographing, espousing extremist viewpoints, um, is potentially at the core of First Amendment protected activity. And having police treat that as a, as a basis for suspicion, as a basis for investigation, is deeply troubling. Um, Perhaps more troubling is the vagueness with which um, these behaviors are defined. Um, photography with no apparent aesthetic value. Uh, you know, there are entire websites devoted to photography on subways uh, uh, or Flickr groups. Uh, photography on subways, photography of, of infrastructure, people who take ph photographs of urban art, graffiti, that is all too often scrawled on, on the underside of um, bridges. Uh, train stations, um, espousing extremist viewpoints. I mean, it's one thing to to be espousing extremist viewpoint that involves a, a, an explicit plan to destroy some part of the infrastructure. But if somebody is debating politics in the Middle East to a Los Angeles Police Department officer, I imagine that every person in this room has at one time espoused an extremist viewpoint. Um, that vagueness provides an opportunity for officers to, to engage in racial profiling. Again, I feel like I'm repeating to some extent what, what Tom already said, but take the bag clothes example. An officer charged with looking for individuals who are wearing clothes that are too big or too warm for the weather for the purposes of counterterrorism policing is not going to stop uh, one of the few occasions where an officer is not going to stop a young African-American man wearing uh, uh, baggy pants. And a, and a large overcoat, that officer will, however, stop somebody who is dressed in flowing garb of African or Middle Eastern origin, who appears to them to be Middle Eastern, Muslim, uh, or from a religious, ethnic, um, racial background that, that that officer suspects of terrorism. When the criteria for stopping an individual and investigating are so vaguely defined as to encompass almost, you know, somebody almost every minute, the officer is going to use the filter of his or her own biases. And that is an inescapable result of such a vague charge by, uh, by the LAPD through the, the um, suspicious activity reporting. It's even worse for um, the iWatch program. While LAPD officers are given Special Order 40 and we have all sorts of concerns about them, they are, LAPD officers are also given some degree of training on, on what suspicious activity reporting means. And while there are problems with that, LAPD is generally sort of okay about saying at least every five minutes, this doesn't mean racial profiling, even if it seems likely that it does. Um, with the iWatch program, when the, when the outreach is to community members who do not undergo uh, anti-racial profiling, any kind of training on racial profiling and, and how to avoid it or mask it, um, the, the advertisement, the outreach effort that, that LAPD is engaging to elicit um, suspicious activity reports is inevitably going to generate um, biased, biased reports. I mean, LAPD, just a, a, a piece of background, LAPD for years and years has operated a hotline where individuals can call and report threat information. Right? You may have seen it, um, if, if when LAPD holds a news conference about some kind of large incident, it's often actually in the background. They show, show the LAPD logo and then they show 1877 a threat, I think is the 
the, the line. And all iWatch is, so the, the line has been operated for years, and there's, you know, you should, in fact, police departments should operate a line where you can call and report crimes and activity that you're worried about. You should be able to call 911 or your local precinct. What iWatch is, is not that line that's already existed. What it is is an outreach effort to get people to use that line to report people out of place, people who are wearing too baggy clothes that they think may be engaged in, in terrorist activity. So, the dangers of, of this kind of, the, the, this kind of vague uh, charge will give are, um, first of all, racial profiling. Second of all, racial profiling is going to lead to interactions with the police of the, the kind that the, the, the young men who testified here have already described. Um, interactions that uh, people should not be subjected to that compromise the dignity that we have as, as residents um, of this city and this country. Um, and interactions that as they, as people get annoyed by them, uh, burdened by them, oppressed by them, provide an opportunity f for, for explosion on an individual scale. I, when people get hassled by the cops, sometimes they do the right thing and manage to the right thing, um, act polite, and after you know only an hour of their time and, and having their car entirely searched, are allowed to go on their way. Sometimes when they uh, are perceived to have sworn at cops or they actually do get upset, um, I see in my other work uh, on uh, in law, on law enforcement often what results is a, a resisting an arrest charge, uh, assaulting an officer charge, and uh, and serious criminal consequences for somebody who in, did nothing to initiate the stop. Um, the other problem is the uploading of this information to databases. And the concern here is, and that, although there, Tom talked about some of the supposed safeguards against this, that, that multiple hits on, on somebody for, for innocuous activity creates um, an appearance of smoke. This kind of, there must be this, we have information that this individual took pictures you know, near the port, took pictures near the airport, um, uh, uh, went to a political protest about uh, Israeli foreign policy and, uh, you know, went to, the, went to the bathroom too close to when the plane was landing. Um, and so there must be something going on there. Um, there, are four, there are four hits on this person, even though none of those hits indicates any criminal activity. So one of the, the crucial, um, this crucial safeguard for that is to ensure that the sharing uh, of information does not occur when there's no indication of criminal activity. But that actually doesn't stop the, the first harm I talked about, the, the initiation of an encounter. Um, so let me, let me talk a little bit about what's particularly wrong with LAPDs as compared to the, the SARS uh, program nationwide. Although LAPD was kind of ahead of the game in coming out with the SARS program, one of the results of that is that uh, some of the safeguards that have been worked through the national process um, have not been implemented at, uh, at LAPD. In other words, they, they were first out of the gate. They have this Special Order 11. And while the federal government, in, kind of, in thinking about replicating this in other areas, has tinkered with their model and tried to improve it, invited civil liberties advocates uh, uh, in and to, to give feedback and, and, and change the, the way that SARS is handled. LAPD has never done, has never changed their original bulletin. So uh, as the result of uh, commentary by uh, the ACLU, Shura Council, um, uh, MPAC, and others, the, the national star, SARS standards call for segregation of behaviors that are arguably uh, non-criminal, that are non-criminal or protected. Uh, and, and kind of a special caveat that, that these are non-criminal and protected and, and should not be read as an indication of suspicious activity absent other factors that render them suspicious. You know, you're taking a, taking a picture, not suspicious. Taking a picture uh, behind your back and running away as soon as a cop uh, walks over to you, 
I mean, in my book, actually, still not indication of criminal activity, but a li at least a little bit um, better than what LAPD says. Um, so that was uh, Peter e uh, Biebring at the at a forum from uh, the Council on Islamic American Relations uh, last Wednesday, and earlier we heard uh, Tom Sincotta from the Political Research Association, which is coming up with a new report uh, this week on suspicious activity reporting. And the session was chaired by Amina uh, Mirza Kazi, a staff attorney at CARE. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thanks for listening.